If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. People created different identities for themselves through the way that they dressed, their jewellery, the way that they uh, styled their pottery vessels, the way they buried their dead. That was Steve Rippon talking about the landscape of England. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with Steve Rippon, who's Professor of Landscape Archaeology at the University of Exeter. Our content director, David Musgrove, met up with him recently to discuss the nature of the landscape in England from the Iron Age through to the Anglo-Saxon period. Right, I'm here in Exeter with Professor Steve Rippon, uh, who is a professor of landscape archaeology. 
Uh, now, full disclosure, Steve uh, was my PhD supervisor when uh, I was studying archaeology 20 years ago, so if uh, this sounds unfamiliar, then that's the reason why. Uh, however, uh, we're going to have a, a serious conversation about serious research. Uh, now, Steve, you are a professor of landscape archaeology. Could you just tell us what a landscape archaeologist does compared to a standard archaeologist? Um, well, a lot of uh, standard archaeologists spend a lot of time grubbing around in the dirt, uh, excavating sites that are essentially buried beneath layers of plough soil and so on. Um, my research is really concerned about the landscape all around us, the patterns of fields and roads and settlements that we still live in, that farmers still cultivate, but in many, many cases are hundreds or even thousands of years old. So it's, if you like, living archaeology. We're going to focus today on uh, on one project linked to your most recent book, which is Kingdom, Kivitas and County, the Evolution of Territorial Identity in the English Landscape. Now, that's it's basically about the development of territorial identity in eastern England from the late prehistoric through to the early medieval period. But there's one word in your title which might be unfamiliar to our listeners, Kivitas. What does that mean? Well, um, a Kivitas was a Roman administrative district. Now, the closest equivalent today is a county, although the Roman counties, as it were, were a little bit larger uh, than they are today. So, for example, there was a Kivitas uh, of the Iceni who uh, lived up in Norfolk, but also the northern parts of Suffolk and the far east of Cambridgeshire. So a Kivitas was a, an administrative district a little bigger than a modern county. Okay, so uh, so Kivitas, we're talking a, a Roman uh, word, but your your project, your book, takes us back further than that. You start off uh, in the late Iron Age, which is a period before we have direct documentary evidence. Obviously, with the uh, start of Roman Britain, we get uh, we get um, more direct documentary stories. Um, but in the late Iron Age, you're contending, if I'm correct, that there are a series of kingdoms that existed in England. Um, how do we know that and uh, how far can you track their boundaries? Um, well, we we sort of have written records in the form of coins. Yep. And it's the late Iron Age that you first get coins with inscriptions on them and they record the names of the people that minted those coins. And what we can actually see by the end of the pre-Roman Iron Age is the development of hereditary uh, monarchies, basically, kingdoms. And these kingdoms seem to have evolved over many hundreds of years. Um, the popular term is tribe, um, sort of groups of people that have a common identity. And we do know the names of some of these through Roman uh, writers. So I mentioned the Iceni earlier. Um, the area of modern sort of Essex uh, and southern Suffolk was the Trinovantes. Uh, the area around London, Hertfordshire, and going into the South Midlands was the Cattle of Orni, for example. So we know the names of these peoples. And we know also that they started to develop along the lines of complex societies uh, like those of the Roman period. They had very substantial settlements that were defended. They had a social hierarchy. There was a, a very rich, wealthy elite and they actually had trade with the Roman world. And we know that because they were importing uh, large pottery vessels called amphora that would have contained wine. So people in pre-Roman Britain were starting to adopt some of these Roman traits 
but obviously sort of we see that process accelerating following the Roman conquest. So but how do we know where these where these peoples were? How do we know the extent and the uh, boundaries of these kingdoms, as you, as you described? Um, well, one of the traits of these kingdoms was that um, they started minting coins. And what you tend to see is that the majority of the coins minted by a particular kingdom uh, would have circulated within that particular kingdom or that tribal area. Um, now, you're always going to get a few coins that actually travel outside that region through trade and exchange with your neighbours. But if we look at the distributions of artefacts like coins, uh, also pottery styles, uh, we also get some distinctive developments in sort of architecture and the form that settlements take. And if right, when we map the distribution of all of these different types of settlement and material culture, what we see is a series of very, very discrete regions. Their boundaries wouldn't have been like the boundaries we have today between our parishes or our counties or our nations, which are fixed lines in the landscape. What you would have had in the Iron Age were boundary zones between different communities. And these boundary zones ran through areas that were very sparsely settled. So most obviously quite high upland areas where very few people lived. There were mainly woodland and pasture but also some very low-lying, wet, boggy areas where, once again, nobody lived. They were sort of wasteland, and that's where you would have a boundary between yourself and your neighbours. Um, and you make quite a, quite a big play of the fact that, that these boundaries were in areas where there wasn't much going on. Um, so that was, that was an important aspect of, of, of their positioning. Um, have you got any idea about what, what, how, this, how these liminal boundaries might have actually been, you know, how they might have existed on the ground? What, what would they have been then? Um, I think in many, many cases, um, you could have walked through that landscape and not realised that you'd crossed a boundary. Um, in one or two places where there was perhaps conflict between groups, there is evidence that they built quite substantial earthen banks uh, with an adjacent ditch, which would have provided the soil to build up. Uh, into the bank. Um, but generally, back in the Iron Age, most of these boundaries were just areas where nobody lived. Nobody was particularly interested in those areas. So there was no conflict. Mm. So there was no need to, to put a line in the landscape to mark the boundary. So would you have felt yourself moving into a different sort of space if you went across this the, the, one of these wasteland areas, if you, if you were moving between two tribal territories, kingdoms, would you, how, how would you, how would you, how would it have been different on one side to the other? Um, I think the differences would have been uh, subtle. You would have noticed that perhaps uh, the styles of the pottery vessels looked different. Um, if you went to the funeral of somebody who had died, uh, you would have noticed some different funerary practices, for example. Um, and you might have noticed some differences in the appearance of people in terms of their dress, their jewellery, and so on. What you wouldn't have noticed are differences in the colours of people's skins and so on, and almost certainly not the language they were speaking. I was going to say, so linguistically and ethnically, you homogenous. Yeah, a, a sort of racially homogenous people 
but communities expressing distinct identities um, in sort of some of their little differences in, in daily life. We tend not to see it within sort of England now, um, although down here in the southwest, for example, we have a great rivalry with our our friends and neighbours in Cornwall as to whether we put the cream or the jam um, on our cream teas first. We can't possibly get into that. We can't possibly get into that. Or or where you crimp your pasty. Um, they're trivial examples, but these are modern examples of how you get communities creating little differences in the way they do things. Um, and that's a really important way of creating identity. And that's what we were seeing in the Iron Age. People created different identities for themselves through the way that they dressed, their jewellery, the way that they uh, styled their pottery vessels, the way they buried their dead. Um, but presumably the, the, these identities, there must have been some uh, competition between these groups, there must have been some elements of conflict. I mean, we have the hill forts, for instance, which suggest that people felt a need to defend themselves at times. So uh, were, these, were these territories, these kingdoms in dispute? Can we see evidence of that? Um, it's, it's difficult to see real evidence for very much uh, warfare. Um, some of their settlements were defended. There are examples of weapons uh, and so on. But I think um, for most people living their daily lives, um, apart from perhaps the odd bit of cattle raiding, um, I don't think we see large amounts of warfare and conflict um, in this period although there was quite a lot of political instability that built up um, in advance of the Roman conquest. Um, and I think as Britain started to get drawn into the Roman world, this, this did lead to tensions. Mm. And there are some documentary reference to rivalries between these Iron Age kingdoms spilling over into conflict. I should have uh, taken us back a bit, actually. So the, the, the period, the Iron Age, what, 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 are, what, are, what are the timescales we're talking about here with your, with your study? Um, well, the period that archaeologists call the Iron Age starts around about 800 years BC, before Christ. Um, the sort of these regional differences in identities between peoples really get going perhaps in the middle of the Iron Age, so perhaps sort of 400 years before Christ. Um, we don't really get evidence for uh, specific kingdoms, probably until uh, the first century BC. So these sort of regional identities emerged quite gradually over the course of many hundreds of years. So in the, in the early Iron Age period, you can't see evidence for regional identities. Does that, is that suggest they weren't there or you just don't have evidence to, to demonstrate either way? Um, I think it's probably that um, the evidence is there mm. and that the regional identities weren't, were just not as, as sharp. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at Britain as a whole, there are some differences between, say, the, the broadly the southwest and, say, the southeast. But these quite discrete identities that cover areas of perhaps two or three modern counties, they really emerged over the course of the Iron Age. Okay. And I mentioned hill forts. So um, the, the, these hill forts that exist, they exist in your in your study area. Were they on the boundaries or were they within the in the heart of the kingdoms? What, what was their role and purpose, do you think? Well, you sort of get them in both locations. Mm. Um, the earlier hill forts do tend to be fairly central to territories. 
and they were probably um, communal structures. Uh, building a massive earthen bank and ditch is a lot of work. So it would have taken communities from the surrounding countryside to build them. And they were probably communal refuges uh, where you could just safely store your grain, uh, take your livestock. Uh, if there was a period of an unrest, you could go there for, for safety. What you tend to see after a few hundred years is that there are some locations in the landscape of eastern England where you do get little lines of hill forts being constructed in areas that are these boundary zones between areas of different uh, material culture, different types of artefacts and so on. And it's possible that they were built there symbolically to say, yeah, this is our territory, but this is the age of our, our mm. territory. So they, so you could see them as defensive lines in a way, but presumably not really effective defensive lines because there weren't walls between them. So. Yeah, there wasn't sort of boundaries between them. I think a defensive line is probably the wrong phrase. It sort of conjures up images of modern warfare. These were probably just easily defended hilltops that corresponded to the boundaries between peoples. Um, they wouldn't have stopped an army from just marching across the landscape. But anybody walking through that landscape would have been able to see this hill fort and realise I'm crossing into somebody else's territory. Mm. But they wouldn't have prevented that movement, but they would have made people aware yeah. that they were moving into somebody else's territory. So marks in the landscape in the same way that perhaps we see the earlier barrows on top of uh, on, on top of hilltops and things like that. Yeah, prehistoric uh, burial monuments, which are often large, substantial mounds. They sometimes marked out territorial uh, boundaries um, in a similar sort of way. Okay, so um, uh, that that maps out where we are with the uh, with the Iron Age period. We've got the development of these uh, of these territorial units, these kingdoms starting, and then the Romans turn up, and presumably everything changes completely. Um, so yeah, I mean the traditional view um, is that uh, lots of things changed uh, in the Roman period, and I mean although it sounds a little bit like the script from Monty Python, um, you know the Romans did do a lot. They did build fantastic roads, they developed a, a network of towns, they built lovely country houses with underfloor heating uh, and so on. But what we do see across Eastern England is that there are subtle variations in Roman material culture, Roman architecture and so on. And these differences correspond spatially to the ones that we see in the Iron Age. Now the uh, historian and archaeologist Tom Williamson has also researched this and has come up with what I think is a wonderfully evocative phrase, which is there are strangely stable boundaries in the landscape. And what I've shown across eastern England is that these boundaries that we can identify in the Iron Age survived into the Roman period. And so we have communities that in the Roman period uh, were the Kivatates, these sort of their equivalent of counties, seem to correspond to these Iron Age kingdoms, these Iron Age uh, communities. So we have broad continuity in these territorial entities, even though people were quite happily adopting lots of new characteristics of Roman life. Now, why would that be the case? Why would the Romans choose to just stick with the, the territorial boundaries that existed already? Wouldn't it be 
you know, in this idea of them coming in and making, you know, all these changes, why wouldn't they have just said, right, we're going to draw some lines on the map and that's what it's going to be? Um, well, the Romans generally were quite shrewd administrators. And when they conquered a new territory, they knew that they could only control that territory with the consent of the existing native elite, who would largely be a land land-owning um, elite. So generally, they simply use the existing administrative and territorial structures for their own administration. So the existing sort of landed elite in each one of these Iron Age uh, kingdoms would have become the local Roman governing uh, class, as it were. And we see this in many, many ways. Uh, so, for example, the Roman uh, towns, each one of the territories, Akivitas would have had an administrative centre, a town, and these were typically plonked on top of the old late Iron Age centres of their kingdoms. So uh, an example is actually Colchester in Essex, which proclaims itself to be uh, Britain's oldest town. Um, it's not necessarily quite true. Uh, there's one or two other possible contenders. Um, for example, uh, St Albans, which is the Roman town of Verulamium, which is also uh, plonked on top of an Iron Age, if you like, tribal or kingdom uh, capital. So what the Romans tended to do was use existing structures and adapt them for their own purposes rather than trying to clean the slate and create something entirely new. And would they have, if they did follow the existing boundaries, and these boundaries, as you said, were going through the wasteland, the areas where there wasn't much going on, uh, presumably activity, agricultural activity steps up a bit as the Romans come in, so maybe that land gets, gets a bit more pressured, but would they have formalised the boundaries because they needed to know where things were happening for tax collection purposes, that sort of thing? Is that, are they, oh, do we now see more, more clear um, evidence? Well, not really. Um, there's still no sort of linear banks and ditches and so on constructed. Um, but you do get certain types of activity that tends to gravitate towards these boundary zones, these boundary locations. So, for example, we see some religious sites, what we call Romano-Celtic temples, um, which are found in various places in the landscape, but they particularly concentrate in these boundaries. So in the east of England, uh, one example is, is Harlow, which we think of as being a 1960s new town. But there was, in fact, uh, a, a very important Roman temple, uh, which you can still go and visit. Um, and it was on the boundary between two of these uh, late Iron Age and Roman peoples, the Trinovantes in Essex and the Cattle of Orni, who lived in sort of modern Middlesex and, and Hertfordshire. And there are various other of these temples that occur in these sort of liminal, marginal locations. And in these are perhaps where, where people would come and meet. Uh, you often get towns developing around some of these temples, as was the case at Harlow. So you would have had chain trade and exchange and commerce, as well as sort of religious devotion. And another activity which uh, we sometimes find gravitating to these locations is the production of pottery. And so, for example, up in Cambridgeshire, um, there's a, a string of pottery production sites along what we think is one of these major boundaries 
And these pottery production sites are very close to the, lines, the line of hill forts that we were talking about earlier. So this is an example of this strangely stable boundary. This line of Iron Age hill forts uh, was occupied for a few hundred years. The hill forts were abandoned, but then you start to see pottery being produced in these areas. And there's also a whole series of uh, little temples in that boundary zone between, once again, the Cattle of Ornai tribe and uh, the Iceni that lived up in uh, what we now call East Anglia. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Moving, charging on through history, covering 400 years of the, of the Roman period and out the other side, the Romans leave famously uh, and the, 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 the Anglo-Saxon peoples start to arrive. Uh, now, presumably, the boundaries then must, they must be removed. You know, a completely new set of people turn up and, and everything changes again. Um, well, once again, the traditional view, as summarised so expertly there, um, is that the uh, Romani British population were swept aside by hordes of marauding Angles and Saxons coming across um, from the continent. And as is so often the case, as we do a lot more research, we find that the traditional views are partly true, but also partly a bit inaccurate. Some parts of the east of England were densely settled by immigrants from the continent, and uh, the region that we now call East Anglia is a, a classic example of that. So Norfolk, um, uh, northern parts of Suffolk, stuffed full of evidence for Anglo-Saxons coming in. If you look to the south, what had been the Roman Kivitas of the, the Trinovantes in what we now call Essex, there's actually surprisingly little evidence for immigrants in anywhere other than the coastal extremities of that county. And what seems to have happened is that you had a very large native British population, direct descendants from those living in Roman Britain and those living in the Iron Age, 
continued to farm the landscape across most of Essex, Hertfordshire, and indeed Middlesex. So once again, when we map in detail where we have evidence for native Britons as opposed to Anglo-Saxons, we see something that's much more of a complex uh, mosaic. Some of these people seem to have got on uh, fairly happily, and there is still, I know you're desperate to find a, a fixed line in the landscape. Well, the people of East Anglia um, and the people of um, uh, Essex seem to have lived fairly happily together, actually. There's no major boundary that we can see between them. But the East Angles and the group that were living in sort of Cambridgeshire, Bedfordshire, the Southeast Midlands, clearly didn't get on. Because finally, I can tell you that we do actually have a massive monumental scale boundary that was created uh, in the landscape. Um, it's actually a sequence of four uh, earthwork banks and ditches. They all survive. Three of them are modest in size, but the largest, which is called uh, the Devil's Dyke, is a, a massive earthwork. Um, that there is a public footpath, a trail running along it, you can visit it. It is a hugely impressive earthwork. And I think we can say that that was designed as a defensive work. Um, it would have stopped the movement of people between uh, the Southeast Midlands from going up um, in what's a fairly narrow corridor flatland between the extensive wetlands of Fenland um, and a, a, a chalk escarpment on top of which there would have been quite heavy woodland. So there's a relatively narrow little corridor of land where you can travel from the Midlands between Fenland and the chalk escarpment up into East Anglia. And that's what this dike actually blocked. So I think we can say that there must have been warfare, there must have been conflict between those peoples. And they did at last decide, yeah, we've got to do something about this. And they did build this monumental earthwork to mark the boundary of their territory. So just stepping back a bit, um, are you saying that you can see continuity between the boundaries that existed in Roman Britain uh, with what goes after it? Um, yeah, I think um, we do see uh, broad continuity in where these boundaries are in the Saxon period. So, for example, our little line of Iron Age hill forts uh, in eastern Cambridgeshire, which is close to a line of Roman temples and pottery production sites, that's exactly the same area of landscape as we see these Saxon dikes. Uh, being constructed. And I think that's probably the, the clearest example of what Tom Williamson has talked about as a strangely uh, stable boundary. We also see this, uh, for example, uh, in uh, running through Suffolk that divides the East Angles to the north from the British populations that, that survived uh, to the south in what is now South Suffolk uh, and modern Essex. So, so are these now equivalent to the county boundaries that exist today? Is it, does it extend forward into that period? Well, the, um, the English counties actually seem to be relatively recent. Um, what seems to have led to the extinguishing of these very, very ancient territorial uh, identities were the Viking incursions um, in the 9th century uh, AD, when the English reconquered the east um, of England in the early 10th century, they established a, the, the series of counties that we're familiar with today. 
And for reasons that it's not really very clear, they chose not to use these strangely stable uh, boundaries. Now, it might be because they wanted to try and create counties that were um, broadly similar in size, um, but also the county was often responsible for the defence of a new type of town called the Burrs. And that necessitated territories that were smaller than the old uh, Iron Age and Roman and Saxon um, kingdoms and, and Kivatates. So I think it was probably the need for smaller territories that led to these stra strangely stable boundaries finally being extinguished from the landscape. Okay, so at last we have a break. The break I've been, been searching for, we, we, we start to see. The break seems to be in around about the 10th century. A long time. Uh, you know, we're talking uh, over a thousand years uh, if we if we stretch out the, the time scale you're talking about. Um, and they survive even though at certain points there's not much going on with those boundaries. So there's some residual memory that makes people think that, that makes them think these are the strangest able places. So how, how how does that happen? What's the what's the what's the memory required to do that? Um, I think it's all about identity, and that um, until relatively recently, people didn't move around the landscapes very much. They you you would have been born, married, and died in the same community. Um, so people's identity was essentially with your land and your neighbours. It would be based on, on kinship, your community. And this was rooted in the earth. It was rooted in, in, in territory. And what we see, although for a period Britain was part of the Roman Empire, it didn't fundamentally change the identities that people had with their discrete uh, territories. The fundamental change really that happened in the 10th century is that uh, whereas the Vikings had encountered a whole series of individual kingdoms, like the East Anglians, uh, the Mercians in the Midlands, the West Saxons in central southern England, once the Vikings had been expelled, there was only one kingdom left that was actually the West Saxons, but they morphed into the Kingdom of England. And that became the identity that people then had. They identified as English um, or Anglo-Saxon, but they had a more collective identity. And people, for reasons that I can't really explain, they just sort of lost interest in their smaller scale identity that had been with these um, ancient territories. Fascinating. Thank you, Steve. And your book, Kingdom, Kivitas and County, The Evolution of Territorial Identity in the English Landscape is available now from Oxford University Press. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was Steve Rippon. And just before we go, I'd like to mention our new BBC History magazine special edition, which explores the life and reign of Queen Victoria as we approach the bicentenary of her birth. Look out for it in all good retailers or order directly from us at buysubscriptions.com forward slash Victoria. And that's about it for today, but do join us on Thursday when we'll be discussing the history of population change. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library. <laughs>